Good morning, Pleasant Street. So nice to be with you again. I bring greetings from Resurrection Church in East Boston. Uh, I'll update you a little bit with the update that I recently shared with Classes Atlantic Northeast uh, in our meeting a week or so ago. Um, Resurrection Church is almost four years old. April 4th will be um, the four-year anniversary of the first meeting of our core team. Uh, and then we'll celebrate four years of public worship starting in September. Uh, and God's doing some really amazing things at Resurrection Church that are, are surprising, even to me, as the church planner and pastor of the church. Um, so two things that we, we noted as we prepared for a recent congregational meeting, we're not really data-driven um, folks at Resurrection Church, so it's not often that we're looking at the numbers as it relates to how many people are in attendance or, uh, you know, how are we growing and what ways are we growing, but we need to be data-driven at some point, uh, or at least aware of the data, so we took a look. Uh, We counted up all the people that are connected to our church that call their church home, and we're thrilled to report that over the last four years, We've grown from a core team of 20 people meeting in a living room to now 80 people um, in East Boston who call our church home. So pray with us uh, that this growth that's been happening year over year would continue because we're starting to get within striking distance of having a church that can kind of like walk a little bit on its own two feet, moving from what our denomination calls an emerging church to an organized church. Uh, We hope to see that happen in the coming years. Uh, Another way that we're celebrating growth and and God's work at Resurrection Church is in ethnic diversity. Um, A little window into our core team. We had a core team, as I said, of 20 people. Uh, Our core team was 85% white, 15% Asian American. Uh, And the reason that I point that out and the reason that it's unique is that our neighborhood is only 32% white and less than 1% Asian American. Our neighborhood is actually over, six, over 60% Latino. And so you can imagine that as we're meeting together as a core team, thinking about uh, blessing and ministering to our neighbors, we were going, how is this room full of white people going to minister to Latino neighbors, particularly across divides like uh, the Spanish-English divide. I'm not a Spanish speaker. So we're thrilled uh, to say that God is growing us in beautiful ways. And if you come to Resurrection Church later today, we meet at 4.30 p.m., you'll show up at a church that is 50% non-white and that is 25% Latino, many of whom are Spanish speakers. You would end up singing with me, stumbling through uh, Spanish songs in an effort to be hospitable to Spanish-speaking neighbors. God is doing beautiful things. We pray uh, that he will protect the work uh, that's been done so far. I I see our church as kind of a little seedling. Um, I'm praying that it will grow into a mighty oak, uh, much like Pleasant Street has in its history. Um, so pray with us for protection of that seedling and, the, and then pro- the prospering of it, that God would continue uh, to provide living waters uh, to our church as it grows in its early years. 
so there's a little update on how we're doing at Resurrection Church. Uh, but as always, I'm thrilled to be able to come and share God's word with you. Would you pray with me before we jump in? Lord, we ask that you would be at work in this room this morning. One of the most amazing truths of Scripture is that you promise to be present. Lord Jesus, we know that even now, as you sit ascended in heaven, uh, you listen with, with ears like ours. You have a heart that beats like ours. You are present to us. You're, you're leaning in and paying attention to your church at worship. And we know that you are also at work by your Holy Spirit, present to us, as always, but uniquely in this hour of worship, present to each of us in, in specific ways that are fine-tuned uh, to who we are. So we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would do that work, a fine-tuning work in our hearts, Lord, as we engage your Word. Um, I'll keep my words from error, uh, and bless us all as we dig in today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So you know that we are in the, the season of Lent. Steve alluded to this earlier. Um, I find it helpful for me to, to think about and review a little bit when I'm in the middle of a season like Lent. What is Lent? Uh, what, is all, what is this about? Well, of course, you may know that Lent is the 40-day season of preparation for Easter in which Christians journey with Jesus through prayer and fasting, repentance, and charity. Uh, it's a season of attention and attunement. It's a time to take stock of our life with God and to purpose again to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I love Esau Macaulay's perspective here. He says, The church presumes that life is long and zeal fades. It should, that's a, my typo. Zeal fades. Does anyone know that feeling? The fading of zeal. Not just for some of us, but for all. And so the church has included within its life a season in which all of us can recapture our love for God and his kingdom and cast off those things that so easily entangle us. Lent is an invitation to plunge once again into the depths of the faith and to become more fully aware of the good life, the fully human alive life, the life that is lived with God. If there's one thing that keeps me from really engaging something like this season of Lent, uh, which really has this sort of gentle invitation in it, I hope you can see from Macaulay's quote, uh, the one thing that keeps me from engaging a season like Lent is sloth. Sloth. According to tradition, there are seven deadly sins, and only one of them shares a name with an animal. Sloth. <laughs> I'd like to suggest that the sin of sloth is the most misunderstood sin on the list of seven deadly sins. Why is that? Well, when you and I hear the English word sloth, we think about an animal like, like that. And then the second thing we think about is laziness. Uh, we think about lounging around, moving slowly, lacking the, in, lacking the ability to work hard. 
Maybe a particular person or a particular character comes to mind for you when you hear the word sloth. We may look down our noses at those who we deem lazy. We might occasionally envy them, wishing that our life were a little more easygoing. The pace would slow down sometimes. But we hardly think of laziness in the same category as sin, right? What if I told you that the sin of sloth has very little to do with laziness? What if I told you that all of us struggle with sloth? Even the busiest, most efficient, most productive member of Pleasant Street Church, whoever you are, you, like me, struggle with sloth. At the risk of getting myself even more confused, let me illustrate this by way of the animal kingdom, okay? There is nothing wrong with a sloth being a sloth. Can we agree on that? Uh, Sloths move at an extraordinarily slow pace, but it is according to their nature. They can't actually move any faster than they're moving. So uh, let's say that a sloth is in danger, right? Here's a sloth, and maybe there's a crocodile over here coming to attack and, and munch on that sloth, right? Sloth clearly wants to get away. Uh, question for the audience. How fast do you think a sloth can move? Like top speed, if there's a crocodile. Yes, sir. Three point five inches per second. That is very precise. It sounds like you might actually know the answer to this question. Let's think in miles per hour. How many miles an hour can a sloth uh, move at when under duress? Any guesses? Maybe two miles, one mile an hour we have here? Okay, let's go with one mile an hour. Maybe they could muster up a burst of energy when threatened, right? To escape that crocodile. This is one of my favorite internet search results of all time. The maximum speed at which a sloth can move when under attack is 0.17 miles per hour. Maximum when threatened. I love that. Even if the crocodile's there, I don't know what the, um, what the laboratory conditions were for measuring this speed. Um, but let's get this straight. The sin of sloth is not primarily about people seeming to be lazy. Of course, our capitalistic society wants us to look at idleness as the greatest sin, right? Many of us were raised that way, to think of idleness as the greatest sin. With our Protestant work ethic, uh, productivity is equated with righteousness, right? Industriousness is righteousness. But the sin of sloth is not primarily about our productivity or lack thereof. The sin of sloth is about our capacity to live according to our nature. So a sloth running at 0.17 miles an hour it's living in accordance with its, its creaturely design. However, a jaguar, which is designed to run at 50 miles per hour, if it refuses to run when under attack, 
If it moves at 0.17 miles per hour instead, we can all say something has gone deeply wrong with the Jaguar, right? It's not, it's not living according to its nature. And so now we're beginning to approach the real meaning of sloth. The sin of sloth is about our capacity to live according to our nature. A sloth is meant to move slow. A jaguar is meant to move fast. What are humans meant for? We are designed to live vibrant life with God in harmonious relationship with others in service of God's world. That's 50 miles an hour for a human. That's what we're made for. That's our nature, that we see this vision emerging from Genesis 1 and 2. That's the speed at which we're meant to run. And the sin of sloth is a refusal to live into this calling. The sin of sloth is to abandon in some measure our calling to life with God, life with others, in relationship to God's world. And so perhaps overcome with the sorrow of the soul, we shrink back from the pursuit of God. We isolate from deep relationship with others, and rather than seeing the world as the context for our responsible service, we reframe it as something that revolves around us, something that serves us. The sin of sloth is ultimately an unwillingness to be ourselves, to paraphrase Kierkegaard. Sloth is an unwillingness to be ourselves. Philosopher Joseph Piper says, acedia, which is the Latin word that stands behind sloth in the list of seven deadly sins, uh, acedia means in the last analysis that man will not be what God wants him to be. In other words, that he will not be what he really is. He will not live according to his or her nature. Acedia shrinks us. Sloth withers human capacity for life with God, others, and God's world. You may have heard a famous quote from St. Irenaeus who has said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. When a human being is fully alive, living into their full potential with God, others, and creation, they're imaging God clearly, beautifully. The idea is that God is supremely glorified when humanity lives into the fullness of its calling. And God's Spirit is actually at work to create new creatures who do exactly this in Christ. That's what God longs for. It's the mission that he was on in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this, the sin of sloth is a refusal to go along with God's ennobling design and desire for us as his human creatures. I'll quote Piper again, who says, One who is trapped in acedia has neither the courage nor the will to be as great as he really is. He would prefer to be less great in order thus to avoid the obligation of greatness. Maybe all this language of greatness scares us off as, as Reformed folks who we spend more time thinking about uh, the second movement of redemptive history, right? Uh, it's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. We hang out in fall a lot 
and we have plenty of reasons to do that, right? But we're talking in creational categories here, that God has called humanity to greatness in imaging him. And the sin of sloth is a shrinking from the call to live fully alive. Maybe you felt the temptation to this in your own life. I know that I have. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're looking back and you're reflecting and you say, gosh, I really wish that I would have done that thing. I always thought I'd write a book. I just never got started. I always thought I'd, I'd redo that back porch. I always thought that I, I would have been a different parent, that I, I would have brought something else, right? We, we look back and we see ways in which our capacity was not lived out to the full. In short, sin withers. And it's this sort of sin that we see on display in the text that was read previously by Scott. And I want to read through it again, if you would, with me. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That sounds like a millennial to me. I'm going to spend a year here, a year in New York, and a year in Boston, and a year in San Francisco, and I'm going to trade, and I'm going to make a profit. And James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James addresses people whose focus is entirely on themselves. In verse 13, we see that they're consumed by travel and work and money. I don't know anyone like that. Their concerns are self-centered to the point of what he calls arrogant boasting. They're so engrossed with the self that they're missing their broader calling. They're missing the broader frame of life with God. And so he's trying to turn their attention, even their language, to include a recognition of God's sovereign will. He says, in essence, I see that you're very industrious, You're doing quite a lot to build your name and your net worth, but with all you're doing, you're leaving the most important thing undone. You're running at the pace of a jaguar, but you're still committing the sin of sloth. And he zeroes in on it in verse 17, where he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, you and I are used to thinking about sin in terms of things that we do wrong. Right? I shouldn't have have cussed at that guy at the stop sign, right? That was a sin. Uh, I shouldn't have snapped at my, my spouse. That was a sin. I suspect that this... um, this view of sin 
which is about committing wrongs, is particularly strong for us here in the U.S. where the, our justice system focuses almost exclusively on wrongs that were committed, right? So we are innocent until proven guilty of committing a crime. But in Scripture, sin is not only that which we do, but also that which we leave undone. Perhaps you've run, run across this language in a confession and worship at some point that was drawn from the Book of Common Prayer where we say, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. So you see these, these two words. There's done, things we've done and things we've left undone. Theologians say, that there are, are sins of commission, that is, sins that are committed, and there are sins of omission, that is, sins by virtue of the fact that we failed to do something. James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In the season of Lent, exploring the deadly sin of sloth gives us time to pause and ask, what am I leaving undone? What am I leaving undone? And your mind may, like mine, first go to your to-do list. My to-do list has this terrible glitch in it. I just keep pushing things I don't want to do all the way down to the bottom. I don't know if anyone... So, you know, I've got some things at the top that I have to get done today, and then there's a, an email at the bottom of the list that's been on the list for three months that I need to send. Things I've left undone. But James wants us to go deeper than the to-do list, and I'm asking you to shift your focus from that which is uh, urgent to that which is of utmost importance. Remember, the sin of sloth is about our capacity to live according to our nature. We're designed for vibrant life with God, with each other, with the world, with creation. So in light of that, I want you to ask, where am I shrinking back from all that God has created me to be? Is it in my life with God? Am I being slothful in prayer, in my study of Scripture, in my prioritization of worship? Am I failing to give God the affection and obedience of which he's worthy? I'll give you an example of what this can look like in my life. I drift. I don't know if anyone else drifts. I hold the idea of God and faith in my mind like an anchor, I define myself as a Christian, a pastor even, but I drift in my priorities and practices. And so sometimes I confess that I can go long stretches of time without a meaningful engagement with God in prayer. Sometimes I stop approaching the scriptures with reverence and a spirit of submission. Sometimes I start seeing worship as dutiful and dry instead of delightful and potentially transformative. The truth is, to whatever extent I shrink back from an engaged life with God, 
I am ultimately refusing to be myself according to my nature. All of these things that I've just mentioned, things that I've left undone, they are refusals to be fully myself according to my nature as God created it to be. And let's be clear. Christians don't do the work of self-examination for the purpose of self-flagellation. We don't do the the work of self-examination because we're interested in a guilt trip or beating ourselves up. No. During Lent, the work of self-examination is done because we want to be fully alive. Friends, the point I'm trying to get across is that sin wants to erode your humanity. We've got a plant in our living room that shouldn't be in our living room anymore because it's pretty much dead, right? It, <laughs> it has these leaves that are dried up, they're curled up, and there's just, you know, a few spots of, of green left, and my wife, who likes taking care of plants, is, is trying to convince me that this thing's going to turn it around, right? Um, it's truly become withered. Uh, I don't know if we can turn that plant around, but God wants to turn us around whenever we are withered in sin. Sin wants to erode our humanity. That's what sloth does. It sends us into atrophy. We wither and we wilt and dwindle. We become less than fully ourselves. And God wants to sanctify us, to give us the courage to live, to form us into the image of Jesus, the icon of human aliveness. We will only thrive when we are in deep, enjoyable union with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The life. It is him. Only through connection to him that we will come fully alive. May we spot anything that would keep us from that, friends. If in Lent you notice something that's that's leading to your withering, By the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, purge it from your life. There are other ways that sloth shows up, though. Perhaps I'm shrinking back from my calling to live in reconciled relationship with others. So I've been asking this Lent questions like, am I isolating? I've been asking a lot of like, how much have I been affected by the pandemic? I'm kind of a, a little bit of a different person now. Once I wore masks and uh, you know, stayed in my house for a long time, I got a little comfortable there, not, not as eager or willing to engage with people. I'm a little socially awkward, as you might have noticed. Um, and so I'm, I'm asking those questions. Am I, have I grown comfortable um, Am I isolating more than I I ought? Am I ignoring responsibilities? Am I failing to love? Am I neglecting to care? Am I neglecting my responsibilities and duties to others? Am I actually actively striving to fulfill the commandment to love my neighbor as myself? Here's what this looks like in my life. Um, I have a lot of chatty neighbors on my street. And I, I generally like to chat. Um, 
But there are times when I just really would rather not go there, and so I just pretend that I'm in a rush. <laughs> I'm not. Sure looks like it. Now, is not wanting to talk to my neighbor a sin? No. But especially if it becomes a pattern in my life where I'm not tending to my relationship with my neighbor, if I am unavailable, if I don't care enough about them to have meaningful conversations, then it, it will move into the area of sin. It will be something that I am leaving undone. But let's get more personal. Um, I have a, a, a three-year-old son. He's about to turn four. And we have a one-year-old daughter. And we, I do a, a fair amount of watching the kids, as is my wife. And I have to say, I hate to admit it, but I often look at my phone when I'm watching my kids. Um, you know, I'm normally checking out, like, the news, maybe scrolling Twitter, couple of websites that I check normally. Um, now, is, is looking at my phone when I'm watching my children a sin? No. Of course not. Who could live under, under that sort of, um, like, microscope, right? Where you're not allowed, I have, but what, here's what happens, though. I start looking at that with such regularity and it's really got my attention such that they don't have my attention. I'm no longer present to them. And what will happen if I spend a lifetime doing that? If my parenting features the phone with any regularity, I'm going to get to the end of my 18 years with them living in my house, and our life is not going to look anything like I want it to. Our relationship will be one that's that's marked by distraction and disconnection. And so can you see how sloth wants, it wants to, to kill me? It wants to kill everything I love. If sloth had its way, it would ruin my marriage, it would ruin my parenting, it would ruin our church plant, not even through the things done, but just from things left undone. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we must name not only what we've done, but what we've left undone, so that we can encounter the comprehensive, restoring grace of the God who leaves nothing undone. The God who leaves nothing undone. I love when you look at the ministry and life of Jesus, sloth is nowhere in sight. When scripture says that Jesus was without sin, this is an amazing thing to think about. It's not saying only that he didn't commit any sins, which would be hard enough. It's also saying that he failed to do nothing. Does that even make sense? He left nothing undone. It doesn't mean that he only avoided wrongdoing, but that he actively did everything right. Theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. 
the picture of human perfection. And what did he do? He did what all humans are created to do. He lived a vibrant life with his father. You see it all over the Gospels. He's, he's getting away to be with the Father. Not like me, getting away to be in a rush to get into the car so I don't have to talk to my neighbor. Yes, he withdraws from the crowds, but why does he do it? To be with his Father. Lives a vibrant life with God the Father. And he lives a vibrant life in harmonious relationships with others in service of God's world. And his fulfillment of the human vocation. This is why he's the second Adam, the last Adam, because he does it all just right. In his fulfillment of the the human vocation, he's led to a cross where he took upon himself all of our sin, every last bit of it, every wrong we have ever done. We're accustomed to thinking about that, right? My, my guilt and my shame, everything I've ever done wrong, Jesus has, has borne it for me on the cross. But friends, there is good news here. Jesus bore in his body everything that we have ever left undone. Everything that we have ever left undone. He has carried on the cross. And so when you take stock, and when you look back, as many do, with regret, know that the blood of Jesus covers not only your worst, your worst sins committed, but even those things left undone that that leave you feeling like a failure. The most intimate parts of us, the most shameful things left undone, Jesus says, it is finished. It is done. He took all of it upon his shoulders so that the record of debt could be nailed to the cross so that he could declare over all of our sinful, slothful indifference, it is finished. It's done. And then he rose again to newness of life. But the record of the law and its legal demands, it stayed in the grave. And so friends, this Lent, I want to invite you to consider sin and its attempts to put you in harm's way. And I would ask you to listen for the voice of the one who died for you, calling you to live with him. Listen for the voice of the one who died for you, calling you to live life with him. Don't let sloth rob you of abundant life with God, the one he's designed for you. And so, friends, my encouragement, my challenge is to notice sloth. Pay attention to what's being left undone. Repent of sloth. Turn from sloth and receive from the Spirit the courage to live. That you might be one of those human beings gloriously alive, declaring and displaying the goodness of our God who leaves nothing undone. Would you pray with me?
Lord, it's, um, it is challenging to, to bring this view of sin into our lives and into our imagination because the more and more we think about it, the more uh, we have to confess. And we thank you, Lord, that you leave nothing undone, that the blood of Jesus covers our sins, even the ones we had previously never even considered confessing. They're covered. We pray that we would be settled confidently in your grace and that knowing that complete and finished work of Jesus would lead us and drive us in the power of the Spirit uh, to grow up into our full human capacity as image bearers. I pray you would bless everyone here this morning uh, as, they, as they grow into Christ, grow up into Christ. Uh, may this community be one that beautifully reflects the God who leaves nothing undone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's now time for our echo dismissal. So this is for students uh, grade three through five. They're invited to come up and be dismissed. People of God, what is our prayer? Thank you for the gift of your word. Now for you students. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. A congregation, if you would just stand in body or spirit as we continue with our worship.
joy to worship with you today. I send you out with the blessing of Almighty God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
your voices. Friends, go now in peace to love and serve Jesus Christ.